This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. All right, guys, we're going to get started here. Welcome to Tax Tuesday, bringing tax knowledge to the masses. My name is Toby Mathis, and I'm joined by none other than Elliot Thomas. Yes, Elliot Thomas, manager of the Tax Advisors here. So thankful to be here, and thank you for joining us. All right, we're going to have some fun today, and uh, we're going to go over all your tax questions. We have a big old list of tax questions here to go over, and we have a ton of people on to answer your questions. We are after the tax season, so they've all crawled out from underneath their rocks that they've been living under for tax season. And let's see, we got uh, Patty, Dana, Dutch, Jared, Kurt, Ross, Sergey, Tanya, Troy, are there any others, uh, Ander? Oh. No, that is it. There's a bunch on. So you got a bunch of tax attorneys, a bunch of accountants, and then some people just like me. They just got around there. Uh, I am in your homeland right now. Hey, Sherry, so I'm, I'm going to see you tomorrow. All right, so uh, in Kurt, uh, or somebody's just doing explanation point, Kurt. All right, and we're also broadcasting on YouTube and uh, via our typical broadcast of Tax Tuesday. Actually, that is on YouTube. There's, where else are we broadcasting, guys? Zoom and, and, and YouTube. All right. I have to ask the wall because the wall responds to me. All right. Let's dive into the Tax Tuesday questions. If you ask your questions via the Q&A, there's somebody that will answer them. If you have comments, put them in chat. And if you ask big questions in chat, we will say, please put it into Q&A, because it's too long to actually be answered in chat. Like, if I see a book come in, like a big old book be written in the chat, then somebody's going to point you right to, uh, please put it into the Q&A. And if you have Q&A, we'll answer it. You could also ask questions during the week. You can go to taxtoesandandersonadvisors.com. But what we do with those is, if it's a good tax, if it's a good, uh, if it's a good question, we may put it into the presentation and answer it live like we're going to do today. If you are asking for detailed advice about your specific situation, you may rise to the level where we need you to become a client so that we have certain protections there. Also, because we're not just going to go out there and do a whole bunch of work for free and be your your tax people on your situation. But if you want us to engage in activities on your behalf, you need to be a platinum client. It's not that expensive. It's $35 a month. And you can ask all the questions you want of our attorneys, and you could ask written questions of our accountants. We put it in writing because there are usually some nuances there that we like to make sure are documented as opposed to just answering questions. This is supposed to be fast, fun, and educational. You feel like it's fast, fun, and educational? Yes, yeah, definitely educational. All right. <laughs> and fast and fun. You don't like the fun? And the fun. It's fun. It's not fast. A little bit fast sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I feel like we're going in slow motion. But we want to get back and educate, and we always do these I think we're close to a couple hundred episodes now. We've been doing this for a lot of years. This is 193 you're at. 193? Mm-hmm. All right. So we're at 193 episodes. Apparently, precision is something Mr. Thomas here is good at. <laughs> All right. I had to put more money. These are the questions that were asked this week. Uh, we had hundreds of questions come in, but Elliot and his team grab a few and says, let's, let's, let's answer this one. Is there a methodology that you're using? There actually is. To someone, I'm trying to... Various questions. So I do look through them, look for variety. Um, I look for ones that maybe there was three very similar type of questions and then try and get one of those in there. So we try and get to as many people in some sense that we can. Mm-hmm. I like it. All right. And there's already a bunch of good questions coming in here. 
<laughs> Let's get it. I had to put more money into my LP to be able to continue stock option trading. Woo woo. Yeah. <laughs> stop that if you're losing money. Like, stop what you're doing. No, if you're just putting it in because you want to continue to invest, I get it. What is the easiest way to handle this addition to my LP? Loan with interest paid back to me or to pay to the C Corp, which is the LP managing company? This seems like there's a, we'll, we'll get to this, but we'll answer that for you. Or can it just be addition to capital? So this apparently is all one question. Could the capital be reimbursed back to me without any tax consequence? I'll just write a question mark behind that. We grab your stuff directly as you send in. We don't, we try not to do editing because we don't want to lose the calling of the question. Right now, the LP is unable to pay any interest on a loan. Oh, this is all one big question. I thought it was like three questions. No, this is one big one. This is a trick, trick, trick Toby day. Yeah. <laughs> right now, the LP is unable to pay any interest on a loan. Some Anderson lawyers state that usually it is easier to use the money added as a capital addition and easier to return the capital to me. So we will answer all three of those or whatever they are. We'll answer that one. I like this one. Is it a good practice to file an extension? Question mark. That's easy. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. We'll answer that one too. If I plan to leave one real estate investment property to each of my adult children, is it best to purchase properties and leave them to the children in trust or to purchase the properties as co-owners with me and place their names on title? So we'll dive into that one for a little bit. If I do not make any transactions in my LLC for 2022, do I need to file any business tax forms? Good question. What is bonus depreciation on residential property, and does it apply to all or only some classes of property when a cost segregation study has been completed? Is there a disadvantage to carrying forward a large unused loss instead of claiming less depreciation? We'll answer that. What is the best tax structure to set up for my son who wants to start an e-commerce business? I would be the co-owner as his mom. I can't see any bad things happening there. <laughs> Mom. No. My family installed a pool in their backyard or in our backyard this year because of my son's medical condition. He is a minor. Is it possible to deduct the installation cost in my 2023 tax? If so, how would it be? Good place to be coming because this guy right over here likes to dig into that stuff. Uh, how much can you contribute in solo 401ks if you have a 1099 income. So you're an independent contractor. So you're not getting W-2 income. You're getting just 1099. You're an Uber driver, whatever, DoorDash, you're 1099. No LLC or corp as a consultant. Can you do employee and employer contributions both? Question mark. Uh, what is the federal tax rate for recapturing de depreciation when you sell? And are there other ways to defer tax? Can the taxes due from a previous 1031 exchange be deferred? other than reinvesting in another property. And on that one, I think because they mentioned 1031, they're only available for real estate. So I think we should probably read that one as a real estate question, mm -hmm. although it could be your car, right? When they say property, we don't know if it's personal or real, but I think we'll probably focus on real estate. My current tax advisor said is it is the best advantage for me to keep my two properties, which I short-term rent under my own name and use a Schedule E. Can you advise as to if this is the most tax advantage? As a note, I'm aware of the other concerns surrounding asset protection, but I am curious if the advice to use a series LLC would radically change my taxes and subject me to greater taxes. Question mark. 
Good questions. AGI is 300000 Thought I could gift 60%, $180,000. I'm assuming that they mean to charity. I gifted $90,000 in cash to qualified charities, and I thought I could gift $90,000 in non-cash to charities. But tax preparers said that this was a 50% limit somehow on non-cash giving after 30% cash gifts. Is he correct? We'll dive into that one a little bit. I might have to get my calculator out. (laughs) We like it. All right, last question. My only source of income is from Forex trading. I do over 5,000 trades a year. Good God, man. That's That's a lot of trades. Spent at least 10 hours a day, and I want to know what the benefits are of creating an entity to pay less taxes. Also, I have friends and family members who have trust who have trust me in me and lend me money to increase my business capital in return for a monthly fee. They let me borrow from 15k to 30k. I usually pay them interest of 500 to 2,000 a month. How can I benefit from this interest that I am paying them monthly? Should I create a contract for each one of them? So we'll dive into those. There's just so many issues that get popped up on there. This gets fun. Hey, if you like this type of stuff, if you want to listen and watch previous Tax Tuesdays, go to my YouTube channel. You could just type in Toby Mathis in a browser and type YouTube. You'll probably find me pretty easily. But uh, Patty will also share the link. And if you're on YouTube, you could just pretend that I didn't just say this because you're already on YouTube and I'm streaming. And I can see a whole bunch of questions being asked. I love the fact that we are uh, answering all these questions and there's no cost to you guys. I actually really enjoy that. It gives me a little warm fuzzy. Uh, but if you are not part of our community on YouTube, you should be. And uh, it doesn't cost you anything. You could just subscribe and you get notified when new videos come out. We love putting out new videos. I put out probably two or three a week uh, on different topics, everything from nonprofits to estate planning to how to make money because we sit here and we look at tax returns of people that make money year after year after year, and they tend to do the same things. Like, it's not rocket science. Got to emulate them. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to get rich, do what the rich do. All right. So this is the first question, which is a three-part question. I had to put more money in my LP to be able to continue stock option trading. What is the easiest way to handle this addition to my LP? And then they have all these different ways. Should I loan it? Should I just put more capital in? Hey, my LP can't pay the interest. It means I'm probably losing in the market. And so, hey, Anderson's lawyer said, hey, maybe we should do a capital contribution. What do you think, Elliot, on this one? Well, from a partnership standpoint, often we would call it a contribution. However, we got a C-Corp in here. I kind of like having it go through the C-Corp, or at least a portion of it go through the C-Corp. It's percentage ownership at the very least. And we can call that loans from shareholder. As you mentioned, it can't pay the interest. You could put cash in yourself in order that it can make that interest payment, and then you get it right back. So you could do a capital contribution to the partnership. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is the structure. It's a limited partnership. So it's a partnership for tax purposes. Files a 1065. The only question is, who are the partners? Sounds like the individual is, and then they also have a, what do they have, a corporation? C-corp. Yeah, so they have a C-corp. I actually like this structure. Because what happens is if there's money made or losses, they just get divided up in accordance to their ownership and, and it goes to the respective party. So here, here's the deal. If I'm struggling and I'm not making money trading, first off, go to infinityinvesting.com 
and implement strategies to make sure you're always making money in the market. We like cash flow. We're big believers in cash flow. It doesn't mean that's all you do, but you want to be making some money. In order to do tax planning, you kind of have to have the whole income thing going on first. But you can contribute money to your partnership. Just put more money in, and all it's called is a, is a capital contribution. And you could always take that money out. There's no tax consequence putting money in or taking money out. Keep it simple in this situation. And that way you don't get into interest and all this other stuff. It's just like, hey, I, I'm putting more money in. You're going to be out of whack uh, with your corporation as far as uh, how much interest. You might be diluting them somewhat. So you want to make sure you're documenting this is how profits are distributed. It might be non-pro rata. I may have more that I put into the partnership. Just document it. Work with us if you need to. And all it means is, hey, our percentages are, are, are set in stone. So let's say it's me and Elliot here. We put a, we put money into a partnership and then it just doesn't go the way we think. And I, and I could put more money in, but Elliot says, hey, I'm, I'm a 20% owner and I'm an 80. I don't want to go down to a 10% owner and be diluted because I'm putting more money in. I can agree to put more money in my capital account and not dilute him. I can agree to do that. And, and then I get paid back that money. It's important that you do that. By the way, if you're doing this with a third party, my advice is going to be very different. If you're doing this with a third party, the last thing you want to do is make additional contributions if things are going south because you may be waiting in line to the very end to get paid back. You probably want to do a loan. So like, let's say that you're, let's say again, it's Elliot and I, we're doing a joint venture. We're flipping a house and uh, it all it just goes horribly wrong and I'm putting more money in. I want to say to Elliot, hey, we're still 80-20, but I'm loaning the money in and I want to secure it with the real estate so that if something bad happens, I get paid back. I don't want to be in a situation where it's some sort of pro rata. Hey, I have a, a, a big interest, but they're distributing out the the monies when we liquidate the the, the badly run and enterprise. I don't want to find myself on the short end of that stick. All right. Anything on that one that you want to hit? No, I think that's great. Yeah. So that's it. Make it, keep it simple guys. All right. Is it a good practice to file an extension? <laughs> yes, it is. And I threw this one out in particular because we just got over the tax deadline and we will start to hear about those who, you know, new clients coming in uh, going forward who didn't get an extension filed or something like that. Toby has pointed out more than anybody that I know it's so important to file that extension because it just gives you more time to breathe, to get things, get all the information in. And more likely, if you rush to get that return done, guess what? You're going to have to do an amendment anyway, especially if you get into syndications. Those K-1s are and, uh, are, are very well known to be late in getting those K-1s. And, and uh, as uh, other practices are out there, your escorts and partnerships getting K-1s. So we always recommend an extension. I don't know of any instance where you're hurt by it. So the only time that I would say you don't want to file an extension is if you do a refund and you want your money back or if your tax return is necessary for financing. Like, hey, I have a loan and they need my return filed. Otherwise, your tax return is not due until October 15th. Your taxes are due on April 15th, but your tax return, you have an automatic extension. You don't have to qualify for it. You just have to say, I want longer. And I always equate this to going back to high school. We're sitting in class and the teacher says, your homework is due on Friday, but if you want, it's actually the following Friday. There's somebody that's like, I want to do the homework on Friday. <laughs> that was this guy. <laughs> yep. And then something changes and the teacher says, hey, you know what? There was, a, there was another question that, that I wanted to add on to the homework. And guy that did it is like, oh crap, can I have my homework back? No, 
Well, does this happen in the, <laughs> I told me it was the following Friday guy. Dang straight I am, Sherry, <laughs> right? Because I'm going to say a lot could happen in that week. I may learn something during that week that changes my answer, right? I want to give as long a period of time so I can make the most complete answer. On your taxes, we get restated K-1s, we get restated 1098s, we get 1099s, we get restated documents, we look at our numbers, we can continue to make contributions for last year in a business, like for example, on your 401k, we can make employer contributions all the way up until we file our return plus extensions. I could do a cost seg for last year all the way up until I have to file my tax return. Why on God's green earth would I just slam that and close that door and rob myself of those possibilities? when I don't have to? And why would I put myself in a situation where somebody else's mistake could cost me? Because as soon as that K-1 gets restated, guess what? Your return is now off. Your K-1 will not match the K-1 that was filed with that return. So let's say a syndication. They rush, they rush, they rush. In March, they give you a K-1. What these guys like to do is go in and say, maybe we'll do a cost seg, maybe we'll change this, maybe the finances were a little different than what we remember. We go through and they change the K-1 and it's actually, they create a bigger loss. Well, I already filed my taxes. So what does that mean? It means that the K-1 that they file with their final return is going to differ than the one that's attached to my return. Audit. Boom. Happens all the time. And even in the case where you want to get that return done for financing or something like that, it's, you still wouldn't be penalized by doing the extension. You just still want to get your return done early, yeah. perhaps, but you wouldn't be what, hurt by the extension. What I've seen with financing is that they'll take the return that's completed. So you say there's a final return. Then that, you know sometimes they'll say, did you file it? And it's like, it's the final return. Here it is. If they want to see a stamp copy or something or a C, you know, CPA say this is the return is filed, you may end up amending it. I just don't want to mislead anybody. There's no reason really to do this. There's no data that suggests that you subject yourself to more audits or less audits by extensions. I would say that what I've seen, and we do over 10,000 returns a year here, what I have seen is that erroneous returns trigger audits. And you're more likely to to have an erroneous return, something with mistakes on it, if you're struggling to get it in by April 15th. And I know in our staff, they're just getting blasted from about February on for that two months. It's just, and then it spreads out over the summer and then it gets hot again in, in September and October. The whole point though is give yourself the maximum amount of the time to do it right rather than rushing to get it done quicker. And I get this every year. Somebody says, I've never been late. I always file my tax return on time. And I, and I just have to say, like, what's on time? Well, my t- it's it's April 15th. And I'm like, well, that's, that's technically early because you actually have a six-month extension. On time is actually October 15th. Now, your taxes, you still have to pay. Taxes you pay by April 15th. And you want to be safe, pay 110% of whatever your tax bill was last year. That way you don't get penalties. You might have some interest, but interest is like half of a percent a month. It's 6% a year. It's not devastating. But you don't get penalized so long as you're paying the right amount. Or if you're paying quarterly, then you're even better, right? But but we tell people, if you've, had, if you've made more money, pay 125% of what you did last year because there's, realistically, you're probably going to be just fine as wine. Like you're, you're overpaying a little bit, maybe get a little refund back, but you're not going to get hit with interest. 
So uh, somebody says, why not just do amendment instead of extensions? Because the extension, like an amendment is going to cost you money. You have somebody that's going to file an extension. Plus, if you have too many returns, then you could trigger yourself and find yourself in a situation where you're being audited. I've never seen data on extensions. Have you ever seen data on, I mean, not extensions, but on uh, amendments, how many amendments get audited versus regular? I've never heard any connection. And the IRS just came out with their uh, publication of their annual data. They give it out, I think, twice a year. So this is 2022 second tranche. And uh, when you look at it, I'm always trying to figure out what's a data trend, and I can't find any on extensions or amendments. It's just your chances of audit are really low right now. If you're making between 50000 and 500000 I think it's 0.1, really low. If you're an S-corp, it just went to a fraction of a percent, which means it's less than half of a half of a percent. And partnerships are the same. They're just, they're infinitesimal, like really low. That's why Congress is trying to give them more money so that they can, uh, so that they can hammer away at you. The 5% or 0.5% penalty of the tax owed would be due on April 15th or October 15th. If you have a penalty, remember your taxes are due on April 15th. So if you paid your taxes, there's no penalty. If you pay the 110% of last year, that's, that's if your AGI, by the way, is over 150,000. If your AGI is below 150,000, you could actually pay 90% of, of the previous year. They were 100% yeah. of the previous year. 100% of the previous year, 90% of this year's, and you don't get p- penalties. You would still get a little bit of interest for the underpayment, but you, you get away from all the penalties. So the answer to the question, is it good practice to file an extension? Absolutely, especially if you have a complicated return, if you're doing syndications, if you're doing real estate, if you own a business. Absolutely file an extension because you're giving yourself time. Because I could be sitting here, let's say I have a, a 401k, and I'm routinely putting in $20,000 a year. And I'm like, hey, I don't really make that much money. And then I just start killing it in 2023. And I have a bunch of cash and I'm in June or uh, August and I'm looking at it going, I got a bunch of extra cash. I could actually make a contribution for my 2022 tax year. I could put 25% of whatever I paid myself. So let's say I'm putting in 20,000. Maybe I paid myself 20,000. I could put 5,000 bucks more into my retirement plan and it would lower my tax bill. Maybe I do that. Maybe I paid myself 100. I could put 25,000. Yeah. Maybe I want to do a cost seg on a property last year because I'm looking at this year going, hey, I've done pretty well. You know what I'd rather do is, you know, I have, I have, well, I don't even have to come out of pocket on that. I could pretty much just do it. Maybe I'm looking at 2023 and I'm not doing as great. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I want to get, I don't want to pay as much tax last year. I want to get some of that money for now. And I'll, you know, maybe I'll pay it in the future. You know, you, you just rob yourself of all those opportunities when you file too early. All that from one little question. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's great. You ask, you ask a one-sentence question. That's it, why I like them. <laughs> All right. If I plan to leave one real estate investment property to each of my adult children, is it best to purchase properties and leave them to children in trust or to purchase the properties as co-owners and place their name on the title? Well, I, I think you go either way here. As far as I, I don't mind going into... Uh, Ownership, I guess, if it were for my kids, but um, you would have had to have granted them something, a gift. And I think that's where we kind of run into a problem is, is that they might have problems with stepped-up basis later on. And I think Toby's most often talked about, 
keep my assets mine, and then I give them away or I put them in a trust upon my death. Either way, there's stepped-up basis. If the kids inherit the the, the properties after I, I pass, they get 100% stepped-up basis, which is much more preferable from a tax standpoint. If the kids have their own money, you can go into business with them, but I don't like gifting things while I'm still alive because I'm, I feel I'm losing out on a tax basis as well as, uh, you know, if I have a lot of assets when I pass, then I like the trust and doing different things. You don't want to leave $100 million to, to kids. You know, I think we've all heard the stories, what happens then and, and things like that. Yeah, and I would add this, that if you're looking at it from a purely tax standpoint, co-owners mean you're, you're a partial owner. You're going to have tax implications to giving them that ownership. If I give it to them, I have gifting obligations. If it's more than, what is it, fifteen, seventeen thousand dollars 17000 17000 then I have to worry about my lifetime gift exclusion. But here's the big one. This is huge. I give a child an interest in a piece of real estate. Anything that child does now subjects that real estate to liability. That kid gets into a car accident. They could take the property. That kid gets in, has a broken picker and keeps picking the wrong spouse and gets three divorces. Yep. That spouse, an ex-spouse could be going after that property. Anything that's in that child's name is subject. Plus that entire property is subject to that child's claim. Now, you might say, well, I could put an LLC around it. Okay, so now at least we're dealing with some of the asset protection, but now that LLC interest could be subject to those same things. And you lose the step up in basis, the big one. So if all you're doing is, let's say I have three kids and I wanna have three properties that I wanna leave for them. And my choices are, I could buy those and I could just pay tax on it or recognize that income throughout my lifetime, and I plan to give each one to a child, I would do that in a living trust. And I would say, here's the specific gift is this property after I die. And the reason I would do that is because if I, let's say I did this now and I bought a house, I'm just using a number, 100,000, and it's worth 200 when I die. Each child inherits at 200,000. Each child now would be able to depreciate that property at 200,000, not at the 100. Each child now owns a property, there's no tax obligation. During your lifetime, you had 100% access to those properties because what's what's the worst that could happen here is, hey, I get these properties for my kids and then I need the money. I have an emergency and for whatever reason I need it and the kids say no or I get estranged from my children or one of the ch- one of the kids does some weird stuff, gets into drugs or alcohol and now you've just exacerbated the problem. So I get it. If you want to give property to your kids, I would say give property to your kids. But I wouldn't do kind of a joint ownership thing. And I wouldn't say, actually, it's something I want to do when I pass away. Then don't give it now, right? Put it into an estate plan so that you get the benefits that are afforded to you under the Internal Revenue Code. And you know, during your lifetime, you still have unfettered access to those properties. You have not put yourself in a situation where you're subjecting yourself to either liability from somebody that you don't control and their decisions and anything they do, put yourself in a bad situation if you actually need the money and lose the step up in basis. Because worst case scenario or best case scenario, best case scenario is when you pass away, you're you're half of that or whatever your interest of that property steps up and the rest of it stays low. So there's going to be a tax implication if that child has has to liquidate the property. That's me. I tend not to be a big fan of, of gifting assets. Allocating it to somebody and you own it is one thing. Gifting it is another. And I, when I see those two conflated and, and blended, I, I, I get a little un, 
get a little antsy. I'm like, hey, it's either a gift, give it now, get rid of it, it's yours, congratulations, here's the property. I hope you do with it. You're 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 letting go of it. You're, you trust them to do whatever's right, and you know that that it could be taken away from them, that they could sell it and buy a Ferrari, whatever, right? You're you're letting go, or you're keeping it, and you're saying, "Hey, this is going to go to you when you when I pass," and then it's perfectly within your realm. Then you could do things like, "Hey, you're going to come visit me. Remember that property? I want to go over that paperwork with you, right?" You know, something they could think about over, <clears throat> excuse me, over time is they could gift the seventeen thousand cash we were just talking about for a couple of years, if they want to watch that child get invested. You know, mm-hmm. and then they could go into some kind of real estate deal or something like that. Loan them the money, or loan it. Yeah, yeah, different ways, better ways to go about it than just gifting at this point. The property. Patty wants the property. She's like me, 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 me. There you go. Always about herself. <laughs> oh, Patty, oh, Patty, <laughs> Patty. But again, you, you lose the step up in basis when you're giving the kids early. I personally prefer that you just keep your assets and earmark it in your estate plan because you never know. And I'd hate for somebody to be in a situation where they need those funds, but because they were really active in the gifting side, they gave property to their kids and then they're, they resent that. Like they're angry that they did it and it's because they put themselves in a bad situation. And now you're asking somebody to help you as opposed to, and if they don't, then it's even worse, but you didn't have to be in that situation. They just don't want to work on their properties anymore, so they, they want the three siblings to take ownership and take care of it. I see there's there's some more comment. <laughs> so true. I have to be cautious with gifting and kids. I'll let our guys answer that one. All right. If you did not make any contribution or transactions in my LLC, so you, you had no activity in an LLC for 2022, do I need to file any business tax form? More than likely, you do. It does depend on how the LLC is taxed. If it's a sole proprietorship, well, then yes, you're going to want to deduct any expenses that you may have had. You know, you say no transactions. Maybe we didn't have any income, but you at least paid a filing fee for that LLC. So you'd probably file a Schedule C with just that one expense. If it's a partnership and there's truly no transactions, then you don't need to. It might be advisable to do it anyway, but it is. Why not just file a no activity return? You can do that. You let the IRS know just in case you have the EIN so that they don't try to penalize you. Mm -hmm. The worst case is that they say, hey, there's a penalty per partner per month of non-filing, and they start trying to hit you with that. And you say, but I didn't do anything. Just file the return that says no activity. But like Elliot said, there's going to be money that you spent on at least the filing fees. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, But your S corporation or if it's a C corporation, you must file those. Uh, regardless of any activity. So you want to make sure you get those out there. Yeah, and again, it really depends on the LLC. The IRS does this. Ah, da, 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 I don't know what an LLC is. Tell me what it is, right? It's either going to be a, a C-Corp, an S-Corp, a partnership, or disregarded to whatever the owner is. And that owner could be a trust. It could be a nonprofit. It could be an S-Corp, a C-Corp, a partnership, or an individual, right? But the LLC technically is not a tax designation. So when I see we did not make any transactions in an LLC, the question is, well, how did you on your SS4 say it was going to be treated? If you set up an LLC and didn't actually get an EIN, then there's really nothing to do with it. It was filed with the state, but did no activity. It's not in existence yet as far as the IRS is concerned. Because the IRS is going to say, as soon as it has owners, as soon as it has activity. And, you know, Filing with the state doesn't doesn't trigger that. It's actually doing activity, funding it, putting money in it, assets in it, and all that fun stuff. So the answer to your question is it depends, which is our favorite answer here. 
And uh, but if you didn't do anything, uh, stuff. Here's one based on Toby's response: If parents purchased a property and provided all the funds for it, but added their kids' names on the deeds, do the parents have to buy out their kids or just amend the deed to take them off? Oof, parents, we're getting deep on that one. You'd have to foreclose on your kids, right? So, yeah, if you have the kids on the deed, then you have an issue. So I tend not to like the kids on the deed. Again, I like to, again, I won't, I won't belabor it, which we'll chat all day about that. But I tend to look at it and say, look, if I want to help somebody, I'll loan them the money, but I'll have security in that property so that if they make bad decisions, I get paid back. So if they have to sell that property because they run into a busload of nuns and they get sued, the lightning sued out of them, I want to make sure I'm, I have a secured interest. And I want to make sure that at least I'm getting back the, the money that I loaned. You don't want to just put somebody on a property with you because all of a sudden that same scenario, they take the property. And you're like, but I own part of it. And the courts will say, I don't care. Undivided interest. All right. I did not. Oh, you already did that one. What is bonus depreciation on residential properties? And does it apply to all or only some classes of property when a cost segregation study has been completed? Is there a disadvantage to carrying forward a large unused loss instead of claiming less depreciation? What do you think? Bonus depreciation really is just the kind of a speeding up of traditional straight line depreciation. If we're talking about residential, that means that we have done a uh, cost segregation, which is just a breaking of the property into its its uh, its depreciation lives, five-year property, 10, 12, 17, 20, whatever it be, 27 and a half, 39. And then uh, the cost seg, you know, the, the bonus depreciation just uh, says anything under 20% life, you can take automatically, well, it used to be 100% up until uh, the end of last year. Now it's 80% of anything bought that year in that, in that particular class. So that's what the bonus depreciation is, is just the speeding up of the depreciation instead of taking it over the long haul of 39 years in, in the case of commercial or something like that. So that means that a cost segregation has already been done on it, and we typically have this with real estate. Uh, as far as disadvantages, you know, not necessarily a disadvantage to having a huge unused loss that carries forward in case of a, a, uh, a passive rental or something like that. But you might be able to tax plan that into something that works for you. If you have a, a large loss coming on from, say, a, a, a bonus depreciation, Try and mirror that with maybe some other event that's going to create a lot of income, perhaps in the way of passive income, or if they're both non-passive, uh, there's some tax planning opportunities perhaps there. I would look at their last question. Is there a disadvantage to carrying forward a large unused loss instead of claiming less depreciation? Realistically, no, because you don't lose the depreciation. If you have a big loss, you're carrying it forward. I would say yes, depending on your tax bracket and depending on how much of this income is taxable. So I've seen people especially real estate professionals, just blow themselves out of the water and have no income. And I'm looking at it going, that sounds great, but when they're getting rid of that last $50,000 of income, it's hardly being taxed anyway, right? It's, you know, you're talking about the 12% tax bracket, you know, 10% tax bracket. And you're like, you're not getting a lot of bang for your buck. So in that case, I might say, hey, let's be precise about how we bonus. And let me explain how bonus works real quick. We're sitting here. So here's Ella and I sitting here. And here's this desk. There's the structure behind us. There's the ceiling. There's carpeting on the floor in front of us. And there's the structure of this commercial building. 
What a cost segregation does is somebody walks through and says, that's five-year property, five-year property, seven-year property. The tiles up there might be, what would you think those would be? Five-year, seven-year, whatever they are. Yeah. (laughs) And then the the structure is 39-year property. This is non-residential. 10-minute property? Yeah, 10 minutes. So, but, but the whole idea is that they've broken down the components. Once you do that, that's called a cost segregation. You don't need to bonus depreciate when you cost seg. Bonus depreciation is saying anything that's 20 years or less can be depreciated faster. Bonus. Here's a bonus. You get to depreciate this. Let's use the carpet. Carpet. We have $100,000 of carpet in the building. You could write it off basically $20,000 a year or bonus, you can write it all off this year or 80% in 2023. It actually doesn't matter when you do the cost segregation and the bonus. It matters when you bought the building and put it into service. So if I've had a property for two or three years, my bonus depreciation, even in 2023, is 100%. So I look at my carpet and I have 100,000. I could write off 100,000. Boom. I get a big fat loss, right? And then the only question is, can I use it? Is it worth it for me to use it? Or should I just say, you know what? I'm not going to bonus that. I'm just going to let it ride off over five years. And then I look at the other property. Maybe I have some 15-year property, some land improvement, things like that. Maybe the, so the, the you know, the, the uh, driveway, I put that in and maybe I have this amount. And I, I could say, you know what? I want to bonus that. That was only 50 grand. So I'm going to bonus the 15. I'm not going to bonus the five or the seven. I can be that precise, guys. I can sit there and look at this and go, what's my biggest bang for my buck? If I create a big fat loss, then I'm just, now I have an appetite to go buy more passive income. What are my types of passive income? Rental properties. Maybe I go get syndications. Maybe I go, or I could do uh, businesses that I don't materially participate in. Maybe I'm a silent owner in in another business and I do not work in the business and it kicks out profit. Maybe it's a restaurant. I always use the pizza, pizza store, Elliot's Pizza, Pizzeria. So I invest in Elliot's Pizzeria and he's kicking me out profit. It's passive. My passive losses will offset that passive income. So even if I have a huge carry forward, I now have an appetite for more passive income. And I'm looking around, where's my passive income? Where's my passive income? You know where that passive income might come from? This will trip you out. If you exit a syndication and it was passive, then your capital gains when you cash out are actually considered passive capital gains and your passive losses will offset them, right? That's why you're talking to tax professionals and looking at it going, all right, I know it's complicated, but it's actually when you start putting them in their little categories, you could say, aha. So... Now, I, now let's read the total question. What is bonus depreciation on residential properties? It is writing off the 20-year or less property faster. So my five, seven, and 15-year property. Most of it's five and 15, right? And does it apply to all or only some classes of property when a cost segregation study has been completed? Well, now you know. It's some. It's the five, seven, or 15. Anything that's 20 years or less. Is there advantage, a disadvantage to carrying forward large unused, lo- uh, unused loss instead of claiming less depreciation? Not really. Not really. It's going to get unlocked anyway. You don't lose it when you carry it forward. You're looking at what it, what it might do is focus you in on that passive income. You might start looking at investments differently because you say, I could make money here where I'm taxed as ordinary income. If I make money here, I have this big, huge uh, passive loss carry forward that'll wipe out and I don't have to be as aggressive, but I make more. 
I net more, I keep more because I, because I'm offsetting it with these, with these losses. What is the best tax structure to set up for my son who wants to start an e-commerce business? I would be the co- co-owner as his mom. Well, we're obviously not talking about a sole proprietorship at that point. <clears throat> so at the very least, we're in a partnership, which I typically wouldn't recommend. Uh, it may depend a little bit on how much money we're making, but I, I think most would gravitate to an S-corporation first. Uh, you have better deductions and reimbursements available at that point. Um, or maybe a C corporation, if you wanted a medical reimbursement plan or something of that nature there, we really get into the detail, how profitable it is. What are we, what are our long-term goals for this business? So on and so forth. But I don't think I, I, I would probably forgo the partnership because you're going to have a cost of a tax return anyway. Partnership generally doesn't have as good uh, deductions, reimbursements and things like that. So I'm thinking probably S corporation. S corporation, uh, I mean, it's business. It depends on whether it's going to make money. Here's the fun one. Hey, mom, are you going to materially participate? And do you have a big fat loss carry forward from depreciating and cost segregating a property? There you go. Because that could answer your question right here. Because you could actually be an S corp and be getting paid distributions that are passive. Woo. Yeah, it just carries us right back to what yep. Toby was talking about in the last question. Yep. That's why it pays to have tax folks sitting around, right? Or you could be a partnership. In either case, you're going to be a partnership, S-Corp, C-Corp, or an LLC. Tax is a partnership, S-Corp, or C-Corp. You're going to be one of those three. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elliot's right. If you're going to make money and somebody's going to take a salary, you're going to want to be an S-Corp. If it's going to lose money, at least in the beginning, it probably doesn't make a huge difference. It could be a partnership or an S-Corp. I wouldn't be a C corp in that circumstance uh, because I want to use the losses more than likely. Correct. There might be an outside chance you're a C corp if you don't need the loss. What I do, would do is make sure you guys have documents that dictate who who has to leave if you guys don't get along. Right? If something something goes bad, have a have some sort of buyout mechanism or some way to to deal with disputes because it's family. And over and over again, we see this happen. People get along great, and then and then everything's going great until one of two things happens. Either you make a lot of money or you lose a lot of money, and then all hell breaks loose. So make sure that you have some sort of exit strategy. In your case, if you're funding it, what I might say is that you're the manager, and you have an LLC. Like, let's say you're an LLC, taxes an S-corp. LLC, taxes a partnership, but that you want to be the manager, and you're, and you're dictating things. And that to remove you, that it would need a supermajority. So it couldn't just be one of you. You'd both have to agree. And that way, worst case scenario is you still have control of the entity. But that's it. I, there was a really good question, and, and Jared, you're answering this, but I want to just point in there. Somebody says, I'm surprised that on my 20th year of rental property, it cash flows beautifully, but I know depreciation is 27 years. What happens when I exit this strategy? I think some would exchange to get depreciation again, but I'm not sure how warranted necessary it is, especially for me. You're actually in a fairly common, this is John, John, you're in a fairly common situation. You've depreciated an asset. Now, there may be new depreciation. Like if you replaced a roof, you might find that there's actually a, a different lives. It's not just 27 and a half. It's when an item gets put into service or a betterment is made on a property. But your point is well taken. You're not, you don't have a lot of depreciation. And I'm going to plant a seed just to mess with you. Depending on where you're at in your life and what your goals are, giving that type of property to charity, you get a deduction for its fair market value. And I know you're probably thinking, but Toby, I don't, I don't want to give it to charity. Okay, but you could actually set up your own charity 
and let your family continue to control that asset. What you give up is step up in basis and it's no longer, it's going to be in an exempt entity. So we don't care about depreciation anymore. But it could absolutely be something that creates a legacy. Just planting that seed because I love real estate that's been completely depreciated. I like to give away properties to the charities that I that I work on because I still get to control it. But I just saved a whole bunch of money. I did this last actually, I did, yeah, I did this last year. Property was around a three hundred thousand dollar property when I donated it. But I think I bought it for ninety or something like that. It was it was a lo- much lower amount. But the deduction is worth more than the tax bill. That's why you do that. And when you usually you're looking for properties that you've really depreciated. So you're in year 23 says it might be that you wait another year or two. You look and see if there's anything else that you can suck out of that property as far as depreciation. And then maybe you start to consider that. It is kind of cool when you do it because you're going to get a huge tax savings depending on your tax bracket. It could actually be more than you paid for the property, but you still control the property and you can put it into service to do some cool stuff uh, for other people. Yeah, veterans housing, residential assisted living, recovery housing, people aging out of uh, foster care. There's just so many out there, lots of different types of shared housing, low to moderate income housing, even Section 8 qualifies as a charitable activity. So it's exempt if you want it to be. Fun stuff. We can conjure deductions out of thin air. Speaking of thin air, there's uh, the Tax and Asset Protection Workshop. We have a live event, by the way, in Orlando coming up. Four days, May 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st in Orlando. It's going to be myself, Clint, Michael Bowman, just a whole slew of other uh, speakers, including Mark Delgercio, who used to speak all the time with us. He does uh, a lot of work on the on the nonprofit side, especially affordable housing. Eric Dodds, who's going to be coming in and talking about the stock market. I have Ryan Gibson uh, with Spartan, who manages over $500 million worth of, of uh, storage, self-storage properties. It's a lot of fun stuff. And it's going to be four days. It's a kick in the pants. We get to hang out and talk tax and asset protection. So you're going to learn all about LLCs, land trusts, corporations, Wyoming statutory trusts, the living trusts, 401ks, how 501c3s fit in. You're going to learn about the stock market. You're going to learn about different types of real estate investing, what's working in 2023. And the best part is you can come there and, and again, we get to get to hang out live. If that's not for you, we have another virtual event on May 6th. May 6th is a freebie. You just go and you hang out with us on a Saturday and we talk about security through obscurity, tax reduction for real estate investors, and a little bit of legacy planning. And it's a packed day. So it's a lot of fun. Somebody says, I'm going to Orlando at that time for another event. So we should switch it, Al. We should switch it. We should come to our event. I don't know who these other people are, unless they're really cool, in which case then then I would say, hey, just have a whole bunch of fun in Orlando. It's a great town. All right, let's move on. My family installed a pool in our backyard this year because of my son's medical condition. He is a minor. Is it possible to deduct the installation cost in 2023 tax? If so, how would it be? So this is um, surprisingly a popular question. (laughs) Um, You can deduct the cost of if you're forced for medical reasons to put a pool in their backyard Probably the most looked-to tax court memorandum case here is uh, one for a, from a Mr. Cherry, and he needed to put a pool in his backyard for his medical condition. What the way the IRS looked at it, uh, he I think uh, he put in let's say thirty thousand dollars of expenses, 
it increased the value of his home by maybe 10000 so the, the core allowed a deduction for medical deduction on Schedule A of 20000 The difference between he, he'd gotten credit with an increased value of his home, any expense above that is what he got a deduction for. So it's certainly um, a possibility, but also Mr. Cherry showed that it was really for his purposes, his medical purposes primarily, it doesn't mean you can't use it for personal use, uh, but he showed that he really didn't have any other options. All the other nearby pools were closed at the hours that he would be able to swim or what have you. He did look for, and he documented these things, which is always so critical, document, document, document. An interesting thing on this is also the continuing uh, operation expenses of the pool are deductible as well going forward. Not just It's not just putting the pool in, but the cost of maintaining there uh, going forward. Uh, he was actually, it was an indoor pool. He was able to take uh, deductions, I believe, for the cleanup of some, uh, I don't know, what the bacteria that grows around inside and all that. So continued deductions uh, quite a bit, but he was able to document that it was primarily for him. Not that he couldn't use it for personal, but that he did use it for his medical. Of course, you have to have a, a medical professional that says, and he did, that said he needed it for his particular, particular medical condition. Uh, that's a, a big part of it as well. Yeah, so the medical professional has to say not only that it's needed, but you have to show that you don't really have another mechanism to get what's needed. So they can't just say, hey, I want you to go swimming, and then you say, I'm going to build a pool. You kind of have to show that you don't have access or that it would be impractical for you to access other accommodations. But if a doctor prescribes it, then the, the rule of thumb is generally then you could probably deduct it as a medical expense as long as you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And the old adage is, Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So if a doctor, if you, let's say you have a child or a dependent, doesn't just have to be a child, but let's say you have a dependent and they have a, uh, a cognitive disorder, which the doctor says, you know, one of the treatments for that might be uh, playing the piano. What they allow you to do is deduct the reasonable cost of a piano in lessons. And that's actually not that uncommon. It's, it's happened multiple times and there's cases on it. But what they don't let you do is go buy a Steinway baby grand for 50,000 bucks and write it off, right? They'll say, you can get an upright, you know, here's a reasonable cost for a piano, here's the reasonable cost for those, and they'll let you write that off as a medical expense. So uh hope that. A reasonable pool, but not a lazy river through the neighborhood. Not a lazy river. <laughs> in, in this particular case, it sounds like they improved the value of the home. So it wasn't just like a normal pool. Mm-hmm. They added some value, and the court probably took that into the equation. I haven't really seen them do that before. Is that fairly common? Did they do it in all the cases? For, for the look? for the pools, yeah. This actually, I learned about this all the way back in the eighties in my undergrad days. Uh, it was one that our our tax professor uh, pointed out to us, and then I learned it again in law school. And and so this one goes way back. It was like I think it is eighty three decision. And uh, so yeah, this has been around for a while. And it's one that they always like to point to. Somebody says, this is interesting, will a single-member LLC with proper payroll offer the same separation as C-Corp when dealing with child support? Oof. So a single-member LLC by itself, if it's disregarded to you, will not give you payroll. It will, in fact, it can't pay payroll because you're not considered to be an employee of the organization. You're considered to be a sole proprietor. And 100% of that income flows onto your return and is subject to uh, self-employment tax. So I'll let my guys answer that a little bit more, A, uh, which is the individual who asked that. But 
uh, no, it's not going to give you that same level of separation as um, as a C-Corp, but I'll let our lawyers dive in on that. All right, fun stuff. I can't resist the YouTube folks. They just, they have good questions too. So how much can you contribute in solo 401k if you have 1099 income? No C-Corp or Corp as a consultant. Can you do employee and employer contributions both? So you can uh, have a, a, an element of both, even though you're not an employee of your own sole uh, proprietorship. But there is a calculation. I won't go through all of it, but basically it's a not, uh, the net profit minus one half of the employment tax. And you divide that by 25% uh, or 1.25. And then that gives you your overall maximum well, the, the, there's the maximum that the, the particular year is allowed, which is, uh, I think it's 66,000 for 2023. But if you have, uh, anything below that from your, your, your maximum calculation from your net profit, it's going to be the lower of those two numbers. But directly to the question, yes, you can. And yes, there is an, an effect, both contributions, even though you're not really an employee, but there are, there are, uh, a, a profit sharing portion and an employee uh, contribution deferral that you get to do uh, through the calculations. But the overall, I think it's 66,000, I want to say it's this year. Um, as an individual, it's 20, 22,500. Uh, unless you're over 50, then it's another 7,500 for a total of 30,000. This again is 2023, not contributions for if you're doing your 2022 returns right now. And you still get that add-on even if it's the 66. So mm -hmm. you could be, what, 73.5? Correct. Like yeah, total max 73.5. If you're older, 50 or older, right? Or is it older? Yes, sir. No, over 50. Over 50. So if you're 50, you're toast? Or if you're 50, you I'm sorry. It is 50 or over, I believe. I'm actually not sure. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. So you talk to your tax professional, right? We'll, yeah. we'll look it up. It's either 50 or older over, or, or over 50. I think it's 50 or over. Just get to 51, you're safe. Yeah. <laughs> But this is always kind of an interesting thing. I tend to look at it and say, if you're going to be taking, like, you should be taking a salary. I don't like doing these uh, solo 401ks on a sole proprietor. Number one, because sole proprietors statistically are more prone to be audited by a multitude. It's like uh, between 800 and 1600%. More likely, if you're making decent money, 100000 a year or something like that in a sole proprietorship, your chances of an audit are... Like at this point, it was literally below 0.05%. It was like less than half of a percent if you were an escort. And you're still looking at around 1.4% as a sole proprietor. So I don't even know what that number is now. It's a lot. It's uh, more than a thousand percent higher. And the problem that I have is that the win rate, the change rate was in the mid nineties. The last time they gave us the data, 94 to 95% when it was sole proprietors. So what I believe happens is your, your, your requirements for maintaining good books and records as a sole proprietor is the same as if you're an S-Corp or a C-Corp. But there's a myth out there that there's less formalities as a sole proprietor. Oh, they're easier to run. You don't have to keep as much paperwork. That's what they, that's what they smack you with. Because with the IRS, they don't care. There's no difference between them. It's books and records. You have to keep good books and records. If it's a sole proprietor, it's the same as if you're an S-Corp, same as if you're a C-Corp. Same as if you're an LLC tax as an S-Corp or LLC tax as a C-Corp. So yes, you can do it, but I wouldn't. If you are making good money, if you're making any money, uh, but definitely if you're over, let's say, $30,000 a year, the tax savings alone just from the employment taxes. So let's use Elliot's example. Let's say you made $100,000. 
you would owe old age disability and survivors in Medicare on the full $100,000. That amount would be 14.1% when you factor in the deduction for half of the employment taxes on your return. So the net, like you're going to end up paying $14,100 in employment taxes. Yet say the employer contributes $25,000 into your plan. You wouldn't owe federal income tax on that, but you still owe the employment taxes. Hey, I, I'm deferring $22,500 into, into the plan. Now it's going to lower the $25,000. Like we'd have to do the math on that. But that also, you still have the employment tax. If all we did was set up an S-corp and run the salary out of the S-corp, let's just say that we ran a lower amount of salary. Let's just say that we ran 30000 we would be able to still do the 22500 but we would save $10,000 in tax thereabouts, just right around that, that mark. On 70000 it would be right at about 10000 bucks that we would save just in the employment taxes. And I know I'm going to have somebody scream and say, well, but, but you can't contribute as much. Then make an after-tax contribution because you saved more than you would have saved had I done the just just the 401k contribution. Or worst case scenario is pay yourself $100,000 in salary and do both. And you're no worse off, except your audit rate just got shrunk by a multitude, right? So I tend to look at it a little differently. I oh, don't, yeah. I just, I'm not a big fan of sole proprietorships. I just see them get tased and they lose all the time. It was quite literally, last time they published the data was publication 55. It was table 17B. And they've stopped publishing it as of about two years ago. But they would actually tell us, here's the audit rate, here's the success rate from the service. And it was quite literally 94, 95% success rate. And you're like, oh, Jiminy Christmas, they're just tasing these people. 70% of the businesses out there look just like that. Don't want that. Don't want that. Bloodbath. A bit of a bloodbath, yes. But you could do it, but should you do it? <laughs> All right. What is the federal tax rate for recapturing depreciation when you sell? And are there other ways to defer tax? Question mark. Can the taxes due from a previous 1031 exchange be deferred other than reinvesting in another property? Well, I guess I'm going to do the old jump to the last question here first. Uh, can taxes due from a previous 1031 exchange be deferred other than reinvesting in another property? I don't know of any other mechanism. I think you do have to reinvest if you're going to defer, continue to defer back up to one of the, the recapture rates. Again, that's going to depend. Toby talked a lot, went in great detail about what happens if we had a cost segregation going on. And if we do, we do have two different types of property. We still have real estate, what we traditionally call our 1250. And then we have that element that got bonus depreciated, which is 1245. If there's any 1245 in there, that's going to be taxed up to your ordinary rates. So it depends on what your tax bracket is. If it's the 1250 real estate, then it's limited to a a top of 25%. So, and this gets a little interesting. So when we're recapturing, you have the zero to 25%, which is your structural component. That's your 1250 property is what it's called. Yep. Your 1245 property is the personal property. In order to figure this out, you actually have to do a cost seg. So remember I said carpet and the, we, we have this, these walls that we built behind us, the, the drive, the, the parking lot, that's 15 year, five and five-year property. Those would be recaptured at their useful life, their value adjusted for useful life. So if, if we held the property for five years, there'd be zero recapture on the carpet. 
there'd be zero recapture on the structure behind us. There'd be a partial recapture on the parking lot based on its on its future value or the value that it has. And in some cases, if it's being torn out, they may still put that at zero. But it doesn't mean that it's zero tax. It just means it's zero recapture. So it would be considered long-term capital gains if you sold it after five years. When you write off the walls, the 39-year property or the 27-and-a-half-year property, it's taxed at your ordinary rate, maxed out at 25%. So most people just say 25%. But if you're a real estate professional, you might find that it's actually lower. If you want to defer that, you have the 1031 exchange as your option. And we also have something called a qualified opportunity zone that's floating around out there that would defer it until 2027. But there's a whole bunch of little rules on that. Qualified Opportunity Zones came out, what was that, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act? Late 17. Yeah, it used to be much more juicy, and there was some step up in basis. But the the moral of the story is you could defer the tax, but you could also avoid any gain if you hold the property for at least 10 years, which means this would be a, something that somebody might do if they're saying, hey, I've, I'm going to own property for a long period of time. I have a bunch of deferred gain. Well, actually, you'd have recognition of it anyway. So 1031 is the only one I could think of. You couldn't even do that in an opportunity zone. So if, if you know, kicking it down the road, kicking, the, kicking that can down the road is probably 1031 exchanging and your exit strategy is to die because then your basis steps up to the fair market value on the date of your passing and nobody pays tax. You get rid of it outside of a 1031 exchange, you're going to have recapture of the original property and lots of gain, all that fun stuff. So you're going to have recapture and and capital gains, um, which maybe you're okay with it when you're older. You're like, hey, maybe I'm in a low enough tax bracket. It's not that big of a deal. Or I always look at it and say, as long as I'm paying 20% or less effective tax rate, I'm not I'm not crying. I'm not trying to get to zero, but I, I don't, definitely don't want to pay it 37% or 40 or 50% like some of you guys in California and New York have to or Hawaii. It's like, ah, I just don't like getting crushed. So you might look at it and say, I'm willing to exit some of these properties. Or the other exit is possibly to donate the property to your own charity or foundation and get a tax deduction. Or even if you don't want the tax deduction, you're removing it from your estate. You're putting it into a zone that can't be taken away from yourself or your family. And your family can continue to work for it and draw a salary out and they'll pay tax sometime in the future. Uh, as they're working for it, but but there are some there are some different exit strategies. Anything you wanted to add on that? Well, I think we're good. I like the rabbit holes, my friend. Mm-hmm. All right, so we have a couple more questions. My current tax advisor says it is the best tax advantage for me to keep my two properties, which I am short term renting. These are Airbnbs, seven days or less, under my own name, and to use a Schedule E. They're saying this because it's not rental activity when it's Airbnb; it's just a business. Can you advise as to as to if this is the most tax advantage? As a note, I'm aware of the other concerns surrounding asset protection, but I'm curious if the advice to use a series LLC would radically change my taxes and subject me to greater taxes. Elliot, what do you say? Yeah, I, putting it into another LLC doesn't have to change anything tax-wise other than moving it in there. Maybe you have some transfer taxes depending on where this property is located. Aside from that, there shouldn't be any problem putting anything into the LLCs. Again, looking at the last question first, so I don't see that as being an issue at all. Your, your LLC could be ignored for tax purposes. Yeah. So it could literally have no impact on you whatsoever, and it could still protect your assets. Correct. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, as far as if it's going to be on Schedule E and we don't have a what I would uh, consider a uh, materially participating short-term rental, well, then the only, you know, if we have overall losses here, I think they'd be passive. So uh, whether or not, I don't look at that scenario necessarily as being advantageous or not. It's what do you do with it? It's kind of what we looked at the one of the previous questions. If I have a lot of passive losses, well, what are you going to do? If you go and invest in another passive what I call passive income generator or PIG investment, well, then those are going to marry up. And 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 so... Well, real, the, the short term may not be passive. Well, if he's saying you Schedule E, you wouldn't... Put, if it's if it's non-passive, it's going to be Schedule C as in Charlie. So uh, it has to go there. So maybe you're... you're uh, maybe we're not... Uh, yeah. we, we want to make sure of that fact. Let's, let, let's break this down real yeah. quick. All right. So the first thing is... When you're renting short-term, if the average stay in there is seven days or less, it's not a rental activity. It's a trader business activity. We may as well be flipping pizzas, right? It's, I am just a business. I am not a rental activity anymore. It's no longer passive because it's a rental activity because it is not. It is a business activity. Then the next question is, am I materially participating in that business? What Elliot is saying is, if you are, chances are it's going on Schedule C. It doesn't mean you're subject to self-employment tax, though, unless you provide significant services, like hotel-type services along with your Airbnb. But if you're materially participating, there are seven different tests for material participation. Like, let's just make this even more fun. If you are self-renting, you're managing these properties yourself. So you have two properties, and you're managing them yourself. That's probably ordinary loss or ordinary income. It is not rental activity in passive loss if you're materially participating and if you're doing it. So my guess is that when you look, you don't know whether it's C or E. With the losses, you're probably looking at E anyway. Mm -hmm. So they're probably looking at it going, this is, they may not even distinguish. You could do it on either form, mm -hmm. in my opinion. But the question is, did you materially participate so that loss becomes ordinary loss that offsets your W-2 income and other income? That's probably what they're looking at. And they're scared to change you from going on to there. So then when we look at the second question, we can make it so it's neutral from a tax standpoint. So you could still qualify as a material participant in your Airbnb business or short-term rental business. It could still be ordinary loss. And we could make it to where it, that we're not changing that fact simply by putting LLCs around those properties. You could do a series LLC. It doesn't matter to me. As long as that LLC is not taxed as a as as a C corp, S corp, I right. think you could even get the the flow through. But uh -huh. I would probably make these disregarded for tax purposes. Exactly. So, yeah, that way your accountant won't even have to report for them. Yeah, I, I just think that it would isolate your liability because what we do see with Airbnbs is there's a lot of liability. Mm. Somebody has a party in there. Somebody falls off the deck. Everything. You're the landowner. You have unfettered liability, and they're just going to sue you and say negligent entrustment or whatever the heck they're going to say. You know, there was there was a, a you were just negligent. You shouldn't have rented to them, or you had uh, you know there was there was something lying in wait that you were negligent in the way that you put together the 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 back uh, patio or something that somebody fell off of. They're always going to sue you, so you want to minimize the liability from those activities. And the simplest way is to use a land trust or an LLC or a combination of the two. If you're in California, you just use a land trust. Just about everywhere else you want to use an LLC. All right.
Anything else you want to add on that one? No. That, that's, it? that's just one of those ones where I always look at it and I go, hmm, I get what the tax advisors do. Mm. They like the status quo, but they're scared. So they say, don't do anything. That's wrong. Yeah. I've had, <laughs> I've, I've had that discussion with many a person. Unfortunately, they listen to the CPA. And I'll tell you, 1999, I still remember this. We set up a building in California, of all places, in an LLC. And the CPA wrote a letter saying you could just get umbrella insurance and insurance coverage, and that was sufficient for liability protection. I should have put it up on the wall because I just said, and then the client was like, well, they're saying we don't need an LLC. You cannot buy a commercial property with financing in California outside of an LLC. Like they won't sell you that individually. They'll get, if if there's a loan, they're like, I don't want to deal with all that other stuff that comes along with that individual. I don't want my property getting raked into divorce court or into a lawsuit or anything else. They want it to be an LLC. They want to know this is the party that I'm loaning it to and you're, maybe you're a guarantor. But in 1999, I still remember that. And I just, I said to the clients, like, have the, have the CPA say that they're liable, that they'll indemnify you from any liability that occurs <laughs> that's not covered by the insurance or that they're, or that they deny coverage on. And the guy was like, are you really? And I was like, yes, if he's going to give you crappy advice, he'd just stand behind <laughs> it. And of course the guy didn't do it. And we, uh, we used LLCs and we've been doing them ever since, but. That's how that stuff always comes on. These accountants sometimes will lead you right down the path. And I've seen clients lose everything because of that exact advice. I've seen clients come to us after their bankruptcy because an insurance company didn't pick up the bill or there was an exclusion. We just had one about two years ago that was a massive, massive uh, lawsuit. And they it, then the insurance company found a way out. And I've seen that over and over again, especially when it's toxic stuff, mold, or a third party causing liability they like to back away from, but they're always when it's huge, they find a convenient way to get that insurance contract out mm-hmm. and say, see right there on, on line, you know, 150A, subsection two, subsection three, third paragraph, you know, it excludes, you know, and you're always going to find that there's some way they get themselves out. All right. Uh, AGI is 300,000. I thought I could give 60%, $180,000. I gifted 90 in cash to qualified charities, and I thought I could gift $90,000 in non-cash to charities, but tax preparers said this was a 50% limit somehow on non-cash giving after 30% in cash gifts. Is he correct? Well, there is a limit. Uh, the 60%, first of all, where we're getting that from is that there's a 60% limit of adjusted gross income, your AGI, for complete cash donations. But there's other limits when it comes to non-cash. And you mentioned that down here. We put the 90,000, we're good there. That's well below our 60% limit of AGI, 180, mm-hmm. as you point out. But then you had this non-cash. And the non-cash has different limitations, and it can depend on the type of nonprofit that's being donated to. But the non-cash, yes, you're not probably going to get uh, the full 90,000 in your non-cash. It's going to be a bit limited, maybe by 30,000 or so, approximately. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure about the 50% limit exactly where that comes in. And maybe that's a misunderstanding for the type of, of nonprofit or something like that. But th- it would be limited, yes, I would imagine. Yeah. If you have a public charity, the, the thresholds are 60% for cash, 30% for appreciated assets. There might be some other limitations for, oh, what is it, collectibles and things like mm-hmm. that. I don't even know if you can write those off, maybe. But, the, but if, then if you have a private foundation, then those limits go to 30% and 
So there might be some of that going on, depending on the charity that you gave it to. There might be some limitation, and they're saying capped at 50%. So you did 30% in cash, and you have a 20%. That would equal 50%. That might be how they're getting there. We don't know without looking at it more. But no, there isn't a 50% overall limitation. You you have a 60%, and it's the cumulative. 60% is I can go up, and so if I write off 30% with appreciated assets, I can go up to 60% of my AGI with cash, right? So I'll still, I should still be able to get up there. But unless we know more, I don't think we could really get into that. All right, last question. My only source of income is from Forex trading. I do over 5,000 trades a year, spend at least 10 hours a day, and I want to know what the benefits are for creating an entity to pay less taxes. Also, I have friends and family members who trust who have trusted me and lend me money to increase my business capital in return for a monthly fee. They let me borrow from 15K to 30K. I usually pay them interest of 500 to 2000 a month. Whew. How can I benefit from this interest that I am paying them monthly? Should I create a contract for each one of them? Yeah, I don't know if it'd be a contract, but you, you'd want to have a note as far as how, how much was lent and, and, the, and the interest, the imputed interest at the very least amount. You certainly want to have that. Right now, you're not operating through an, uh, a, a corporate entity from what it appears. So that interest, you would be limited to your investment in interest income deduction on your, your Schedule A uh, itemized deductions. So uh, there's where you, I think you're probably really hurting yourself with these dollar amounts. Going through the entities, we like to often use a trading structure where there's a maybe a corporation involved and the rest is you perhaps individually. That would allow you to deduct these perhaps on the C-Corp and avoid all those limitations that, like that for your interest. And then maybe they would lend to the C-Corporation perhaps. And you also have better reimbursements and things like that that you can take through, you take advantage of through the corporation. Something Toby and I were talking about before we started this show, there is a difference apparently in the type of spot trading, I believe it is. Is that right? Yeah. Whenever you're involved in Forex, you're going to go either, for, uh, you're going to have spot trading where it settles within two days. Or you're going to have futures contracts where it's a 1050 or a 1256 contract, which case it's treated as 60% long-term capital gains and 40% short-term capital gains. So it sounds like you're doing spot trading and that's 988 contracts and that you would qualify as a trader in securities. I believe that Forex would fall underneath that category and it's, it's not a stat, it's not a statute. This is, we created this in the courts, which is when does an activity qualify for ordinary and necessary business deductions? And the rule of thumb is 720 trades a year, trading 70% of the days. You know, there has to be substantial activity. I think you're hitting them all. It sounds to me like you're hitting them all, like you're blowing it out of the water when you're doing 5,000 trades. So you'd probably be a, a trader. And then that allows you to write off business deductions losses are another issue. And for a securities trader and you have capital losses, it can turn into ordinary loss if you make a mark-to-market election. But you have to be a trader and make a mark-to-market election the year prior to the election taking place. So we could make the potentially make the election for 2024. You would be too late now for 2023. But that's only for losses. As trader in securities, when you're Forex and if you're doing 988, there's no such limitation. I believe that it's ordinary loss, period, when you're doing spot trading. And again, it sounds to me like you're probably doing spot trading. And so it's worth taking a look because what that would allow you to do is you're a trader, you file as a trader, 
and your spot trading, if it sounds to me like you don't have losses, it sounds like you just have income. So what we care about is being able to write off our expenses. You could do so in a structure where you have the Forex trading in a LLC tax as a partnership with a corporation as, as the manager and probably a partner at 20%. And that way, if you have expenses, you could run them through the corporation or your level seems high enough. You'd probably very easily qualify as a trader. Then you could just write off your deductions on your Schedule C. It sounds weird, but you're writing expenses off on Schedule C and you're reporting all your trades. More than likely, I think it would be Schedule D for Forex. And you write off all your expenses that way. So are there other benefits you could have using a trading structure? Potentially, if you decided to set it up, for example, and you said, you know what, I'm going to make this thing a go, but make it an S-corp, you could go that route, or you could have the partnership and corporation uh, mix and possibly have a higher percentage going to the corporation or pay it a, a guaranteed payment every month. And then it could turn around and pay a salary to you that you could put into a 401k, that type of thing. It all depends on you. And, and basically you're getting down and crunching the numbers to see whether there's enough benefit there so that the juice is worth the squeeze. But, but I could see that. I could see that being a benefit. I, you know, a lot of traders, they lose out because when you're trading in the market, you can't contribute to a retirement plan. So you're just kind of, oh, so what could you do? Yeah, I could pay myself a small salary. Everything else would still flow down to my return. I could potentially go that route and then I could fund a Roth IRA and I could go do Forex trading in there. I could fund a 401k and I could go do Forex trading in there, which is completely tax deferred. And then I could still be writing off my expenses through my business. So it could be as simple as an LLC tax as an S-corp. It could be as simple as an LLC that you tax as a trader, uh, or it could be as complicated as having a partnership with a corporation. It's just kind of going through the scenarios to see which one seems like it's the easier fit for you and gets you to where you want to be. But uh, my guess is that you qualify as a trader. And I see very few people that qualify as a trader. I've been doing this for 26 years. And so often people come in and they're like, I'm a trader. And then I'm doing, they're doing you know, long-term trades, like it's a bright line rule. You have to have an average hold period for less than 30 days. And they, they still blow through that and they're doing 200 trades a year. And it's, they're not a trader and they have another job or something else. They have another W2 job. They're just never going to qualify. You look like you qualify. Rarely see that. So uh, you, you probably have many more opportunities than you realize. And it's smart to sit down and have somebody map those out with you. All right. If you like this kind of stuff, guys, we're going to post this recording up on YouTube. Feel free to go grab it anytime. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Be part of the, I don't know how many people are on there now, a lot. And uh, come join us on YouTube. It's free. And you can get notified when new videos come out, including the Tax Tuesdays are posted. So if you missed something and you said, you know what? What did he say there? You can go back and watch it again. Thank you to Dana Dutch. Oops. They just did it. Dana, Dutch, Jared, Kurt, Ross, Sergey, Tanya, Troy, and Patty, because they were on answering questions. They actually answered, get this, guys, 226 written answers. And that's not counting chat. <laughs> that's just written questions. So this is our public service, is uh, we go out and we like to share tax knowledge. Hopefully it takes some of the anxiety that some people feel. Maybe you're doing this. You're like, mm, I like taxes now. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'm, I, I want to know more. I want to know some more. Then come join us. You're always welcome to join us. If you have questions in the meantime, send them in tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Uh, and just know 
that we may take your question. We're not going to put your name on it, but we may post it up here and answer it live. But we get hundreds of questions a week. So every <laughs> other week, we got a, we got a big pool to, to, to draw from. Yep. And Elliot does a really good job of picking them. I used to pick them, but I, I had no desire to read through them. I would just take 10 or 12 or 15 or sometimes we used to get a little over, a little over crazy. There was a time when Tax Tuesdays went on for a couple hours at a time. But now we're good. We're sticking to, this is an hour and 23 minutes. We're bad. We're in timeout. All right. So two weeks, we'll see you guys again. Any parting words? No, thank you all so much for joining. Great to see you. Yep. It's fun. To all you YouTubers out there, fire, guys. That was fire. You guys were asking a lot of questions to all the folks on Zoom. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for all your Q&A and all your, your comments. Love you. Hope you're very successful. Don't listen to all the crap out there. Just keep pushing your heads down. Keep making good money and uh, pay your fair share in taxes, but you only have to pay the legal amount. Nobody says you have to leave a tip. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.